this is my voice. It can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on the Black experience. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts. Hello, my name is Brian Washington, and I'm the author of the novel Family Mail. Brian Washington made a name for himself with his 2020 debut novel, Memorial. It posed some deep yet unanswerable questions about how to navigate relationships with those who are closest to us. In his new book, Family Meal, Washington looks at those questions again. From KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network, this is Marginalia. So could you give our listeners a brief description of Family Meal? Do you have an elevator speech for it? It's been challenging, but in many ways, Family Meal is a novel about two friends who are reconciling after some time away. It's also about found family, queer friendship, and ghosts. You mentioned ghosts because Cam, one of our main characters, is haunted by Kai's ghost. Kai was his boyfriend. And he sees him at seemingly random times and imagines alternate versions of his death. So talk to me about their relationship, Kai and Cam's relationship, and how it continued even past Kai's death. In the relationship between Cam and Kai, it felt important to me to try and capture the ways in which navigating grief is not a straight line, or rather it's very seldom a straight line and it is a circuitous path that can look quite differently from person to person. Kai was really important to Cam. He was a love in his life. He was a North Star, so to speak. So in writing the relationship, one of the questions that I was circling around was when we're no longer told how to be or who we are, who we should be when we no longer have that sort of focal point to reflect ourselves off of or to reflect an iteration of ourselves off of how do we progress or how do we make it back to center and how and what challenges can present themselves as we try to figure out how to be okay. You know, family meal is told through three voices, Kai, Cam, and TJ. And each section has not only a distinct voice, but also a distinct format. Kai's includes photographs. TJ's is broken up into numbered sections. And so I'm wondering, when you set out to write a book, how, how I wonder how each of these voices spoke to you and how you decide, how you decided to separate each so precisely. I knew that I wanted to write a novel circling around the question of the different forms that queer friendship could take. So from the outset, I was pretty sure that I'd want to give near equal credence to the two friends in question, Cam and TJ. But it wasn't until much later in the writing process that the thought of having Kai serve as his own voice and as an active and present tense character in the narrative, despite his being deceased in the present time, really surfaced for me. I think that when that did occur, there was an emotional fullness that I was able to access as far as the entire narrative is concerned that was really challenging for me to broach with just Cam and TJ. It felt 
to me and generally feels to me when I think through like the structure of a narrative, I try to really parse on my end how many vantage points I can thoughtfully maneuver through a story. I'm very seldom interested in actually answering any of the questions that I circle around, right? Questions like, what is home? Or, you know, how many forms can family take? Uh, how many forms uh, can, like, a partner take? How many forms can, like, a friend take? Or, like, that rift in between, particularly amongst uh, queer folks. Like, I think the interesting thing about those questions is, you know, the, the context shift from person to person and the solutions or conclusions like, are seldom um, static. So the more voices that I feel that can participate in the conversation surrounding um, those questions. Uh, it feels as if uh, the narrative uh, can be a bit truer to life. So it ultimately um, felt additive to have uh, the three voices uh, at the end. Well, and I want to talk to you about perspective and these these three different vantage points, because although we have the three voices, this is not three versions of a story. It's a continuous story told from three perspectives. And so how do you decide who gets to reveal any one thing about someone else? Because, I mean, we learned a lot about TJ in his chapters, but we also learned a lot about Cam and even Kai from TJ's chapters. Yeah, I think that a challenge for me was attempting to replicate the effect of just learning about a group of people. I think it's very seldom that if we're introduced to a friend group or like a pre-existing community or like a pre-existing unit that we're going to be privy to each person in that friend group or like community units likes, interests, loves, loathes and so on from the outset. Uh, what feels true to life for me is meeting one person in a network and getting a feel for how we interact with each other uh, in a very specific context and then meeting another person in that same network or a parallel network who may know that first person. But my interactions that have succeeded that are not only shaping my impression of every person I meet, following the initial one, but also that person as well. Uh, in writing a narrative about friendship, first we have Cam and Cam's voice, and through him we find an iteration of TJ and we find an iteration of Kai, but I feel it's only after we've spent time with TJ's voice and after we spent time with Kai's voice that we become a little more comfortable with each of these characters as people. Uh, I think that in a lot of ways, who we are and like how we navigate the world is not solely like how we think of ourselves, but also like how we interact in the communities in which we find ourselves, how they reflect and refract all of us. That feels a little bit closer to just navigating, you know, these spaces as a person. Uh, and that was a goal for me to try to position the reader so that when they walked away from the novel, it wasn't me telling you who Cam is or me telling you who TJ and Kai are, or even TJ telling you who Cam and Kai are. Um, the reader has spent time with each of these characters in various capacities and various contexts, and now they belong to the reader as much as they belong to one another. The sections from Kai's perspective, as we mentioned earlier, they included photographs. How did you decide which images to include? And I wonder if anything is lost for those who are only listening to the audio or if anything is gained, you know, by listening to the audio, because it's told through three voices. I, 
I consumed your book through both formats. So I'm wondering if there's if anything is lost for one um, format or the other. I think for me, when I'm thinking through what is possible as far as like prose is concerned, what's top of mind a little bit paradoxically is also what I'm not able to achieve. So you lose the visual component, right? Like I have to tell you how a room feels or how close bodies are to one another or how tense a character's body language may be on the page. I can't really show you. I think that with Kai's vantage point, although the photos aren't of people, they aren't of TJ or of Cam or of the larger communities in which they surround themselves, it felt like an opportunity to offer another shade of who this character is, particularly a character who is not embodied, so to speak, in the present tense of the narrative. And it felt as if though it only made structural sense to me for it to be Kai because of his position as a character who is not embodied, so to speak, in the narrative. I think that a challenge that can exist with navigating any narrative is going to be how do I create a person on the page in lieu of an archetype or in lieu of an idea of a person, like an idea of how this person might be or a person like this might be. So in the same way that the photographs feel as if they could be additive for folks who are reading the print edition and in the audio iteration, actually hearing the variations of each speaker from person to person, that feels as if though it's an additive component that folks who are reading the print um, narrative uh, may not be privy to, but audio um, listeners would be. So it is, I think, working in different ways. And I think the effects are different, but I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing or a disappointing thing in the same way that each of us, even if we're reading the same text, what we pull out of it, what we value, what feels challenging to us or what feels commonplace to us is going to vary from individual to individual. I think I'm just uh, really lucky and like really grateful in a lot of ways that there are different formats through which someone uh, can parse uh, the story. Even as I was listening to your answer, I thought, yeah, there were photos of all of these flowers, but the descriptions of, of the gardens or or the bouquets of, of sunflowers or even the weed, you know, coming out of a crack in the sidewalk, they were all there. So the components were there. I just I had to just see them in my mind. So each of these three narrators navigates his own queerness differently, but a common thread that links them is the secrecy and sometimes shame forced on them. The book is set in today's world. You know, and we'd like to hope that we've come a long way since the start of the gay rights movement in the 1960s. But how far have we come, really? Mm, I think the a challenge in writing Family Meal was writing a narrative in which each of these characters, Cam and TJ and Kai, are able to experience their loves and able to experience their joys and their hopes and one in which they have the benefit of the doubt, but also having an honesty about the challenges they face by way of their marginalization or by way of the specific communities in which they find themselves. I think that what felt right to me ultimately 
was to try to imbue their respective narratives with as much specificity as possible and the challenges that they face with as much specificity as possible. I think though that a challenge that you're always going to run into when you're writing and particularly when you know you're reading as a reader of narratives featuring folks who are coming from marginalized communities are the ways in which that marginalization and the ways in which like the traumas surrounding that marginalization of just trying to be okay and you know white supremacist society can override that benefit of the doubt and can override those joys and can override those hopes so much of the editing work on my end was like trying to find a balance there right trying to feel out an iteration that felt true to life and that yes you know you're navigating these issues and yes many of them are structural and yes many of them have drastic impacts on your life but you still have your loves and you still have to go to work and you still have your hopes and you still have the things that you aspire to that are interconnected or perhaps not solely related to those structural challenges or the, to those community-wide challenges. Trying to create a narrative in which I'm showing the challenges that people are facing and the hopes that people are moving toward in lieu of like archetypes or types or categories or iterations of people um, was the goal and always is the goal, particularly when I'm writing about uh, communities that are just facing really demanding challenges. In December of last year, you wrote a piece for The New Yorker that talked about how as schools ban books and state legislatures pass anti-trans bills, bars offer something holy. And so I was thinking about this because when we first meet Cam, he's working at a bar and bars and bathhouses play an important role for this book. Talk to me about the importance of of those locations. I think that they're essential to an understanding of family, Neil. I mean, I think that what felt as if though it was a goal for me in this narrative was to try and write through each of these characters, through Cam and through Kai and through TJ to varying degrees, the ways in which these spaces and the communities and the folks that spend time in these spaces can so impact one's trajectory and so impacts one's sense of self and the ways that that sense of self can change over time. And so the experiences that Cam has in saunas, in queer bars, in queer spaces radically impact his sense of self, radically impact his trajectory, but not in the same way that it does for TJ and not in the same way that it does for Kai. I think that showing or attempting to show the elasticity of these spaces, how components of these spaces can be really challenging for Cam, but they can be really additive for Kai, or they can be really empowering for TJ, or components of these spaces just can just be really fraught for TJ, but they can make Cam feel as if though he's the most alive that he's been. I think that trying just to show the many different shades that can exist inside of these spaces, many of which are often written off as being one note or written off as being dangerous or written off as not having value in their respective communities or value um, in their respective environments uh, felt uh, really important to me because each of these spaces in different capacities has had a lot of value for me. Um, they've had a lot of impact on who I am and how I see myself and who and how my friends see themselves and how we see one another. So trying 
to translate that on the page felt as if though um, it would be a big challenge because it's a massive thing, I think, uh, to, to try and uh, condense the idea of a space onto the page, let alone like the space itself. I don't know that a one-to-one correlation or translation is ever going to be possible. Uh, but even just showing, you know, the, the ways in which um, these queer spaces can be important uh, to so many people and so many different kinds of people um, felt as if um, it were important for the novel. The way in which Kai died, it's a situation we've heard repeated too many times now, you know, a traffic stop in which a black man is killed by a police officer. I can't possibly imagine the depth of trauma that reading about these scenarios might cause for a black person. But so how do you navigate writing about it? Or are you able to disconnect a bit? Or is writing this story a means of processing the reality of what's going on in our world? Mm, I think that when I was navigating Kai's narrative and his narrative trajectory, ultimately, one component of like how that scene ultimately came to be is that it wasn't included in like the original drafts in the same way that Kai's voice wasn't included in the original draft. Originally, it was just TJ and Cam who were reflecting off of one another and progressing together. And that was largely out of, I think, a fear of the challenges that their respective communities face and continue to face overriding uh, their own friendship and the progression of their relationship. But I found ultimately that it was more honest if I allowed space for those challenges that these communities face, right? Whether they are homophobia, whether they are racist, whether they are the intersection of the two under like this wider blanket of like white supremacy, allowing, I think, space for those challenges that they navigate in many different ways, I think, amplified the moments in which they were able to find joy and the ways in which they were able to find community with one another. So Kai's death ultimately falls into that question for me of how can I be honest and nod to the violence of American life for so many of these marginalized communities while simultaneously creating space and holding space for the joys that can exist inside of these communities simultaneously and the hopes that can exist inside and for these communities simultaneously. And the many different emotions that can and have to exist in tandem with one another. I think another component of writing about Kai's trajectory is and was ensuring that he was like a present tense voice for the duration of the narrative. I think that a risk for including a scene in which you have a death by way of the state, by way of like racist violence and structural violence is that the individual who's navigating that violence is very much in the past tense, right? Or there's something who something like has simply happened to, or they're used as a symbol or they're used as a theme for some larger idea that the book was pushing or a book could be pushing. And I knew I didn't want to do that partly because it wasn't very interesting to me or like useful as a tool and partly because it didn't really feel on in and of itself, right? Like when we lose someone, uh, they're not erased from our memory, you know, like our emotions and the time that we spent with them and our conception of ourself as and through them shifts, sure, it changes, sure, but it doesn't go away entirely. So trying to find a way to balance 
these different emotions and these different emotional spaces felt as if it was really challenging, but it honestly felt uh, as if though it was another way of like opening um, the novel up to something that feels closer to like how life is experienced or can be experienced. So Family Meal is your second novel. And like your first memorial, it takes place in Houston, Texas. The changing city almost becomes a character in and of itself. I mean, the bar closes, the bakery moves, new trees are, are planted alongside old trees together on a street. What is it about Houston that appeals to you as a setting for your writing? I think quite a lot of it stems from the ways in which you have so many different communities and a, a true diversity of communities and that it's racially and ethnically diverse. It is socioeconomically diverse. It's diverse by way of the many different microcultures inside of the more front-facing larger cultures that exist inside of the city. The ways in which these entities are in such close proximity to one another and by way of that proximity they just have to find a way to make things work for one another. That makes a space that's like really rife for narrative, I think, particularly as someone who is super interested in the different forms that a community can take, but also like how those communities can change and how the proximity of one community to and alongside another impacts like both of their trajectories. And I, I don't know that I've been able to find that in very many other places and certainly not very many other American cities. I mean, you have like a New York, sure, you have like a Los Angeles, sure. But for me, I think that I'm able to accomplish it in Houston on my end <laughs> most ably right now and you know that could change you know as my sense of like community changes and like my sense of like uh, where i'm finding value as far as narrative and community um changes but uh houston uh is dear to me just generally um and it is a place that it's just a lot of fun to tell stories about it's constantly um shifting um and that i think uh, also makes for like a really useful narrative as well you really can't land on like a solid answer or conclusion for like what the city is or like what its communities um, are, which makes it uh, really useful as far as stories go. Did you have to do any research when it came to the food in the novel or are you just a foodie? <laughs> uh, I, I, I am a foodie. Uh, I am a foodie, but I, I did have to do, I mean, so with every text, I feel like there's like a certain amount of research that I have to do, especially interestingly enough like if it is a place that like i think that i know well um uh whether you know it's houston uh whether it's a particular neighborhood whether it's another city or like another space or a community i feel like if like because like i may have spent so much time in that space or because i have like such familiarity within my own specific context there may be like massive blind spots that i'm just not aware of by way of my having been you know so comfortable so um for each of the meals that like exists in the book um i either cooked it myself or like i sat through um, a number of iterations and i think that that was partly because it felt important to me to have a sense of how someone could 
interact or like hold a conversation in the midst of cooking that particular meal. If there were a beginner cook or someone who was just getting comfortable in the kitchen as lieu of someone who is perhaps like a little bit more comfortable and more sure of themselves in that space. I think that for me, food is mostly useful insofar as it serves as like a gateway or an entry point into having other conversations because we're talking about food. You're also talking about the labor behind it and who is deemed or like presenting as the consumer of that food, who the food is expected to have come from or who the ingredients are expected to have come from. You're also talking about bodies. If you're talking about food and the way in which people relate to one another or people relate uh, to themselves and like how that can change over time and also some of the challenges that can exist inside of it and around it. So like food is like really useful as like a jumping off point uh, for a lot of these conversations. And it's also like a shorthand uh, in the way that like all of us to some degree um, depends on some sort of sustenance. So it's like an easy um, uh, access point um, to begin to have other conversations. And it's also fun to write about. So, and, you know, and it's uh, in, in two different ways, like two really distinct ways. Um, it, it's had a lot of value for me narratively. So you also publish short stories and essays. How do you decide what you're working on at any given time and, and what is next for you? Mm, I think that for me, I've found that I circle around like three or four questions like at a time. So an individual project in a lot of different ways is a new context for those questions because none of them have like static answers like what is family like what and how does queerness or a community's queerness shift and impact one's sense of friendship or one's sense of love or like one's sense of intimacy and community like what are different forms that home can take uh, there's many different answers to those questions as there are like not only people but experiences that like a person has so trying to figure out like okay like what is the context through which I want to approach this question now or what is the vantage point from which contorting that question um, could be the most useful that'll dictate like not only what the project is but also like the length of time um, that I'm able to or that I can spend with a particular um, project which is made uh, for like some really interesting like starts and stops and like attempts uh, even family meal you know originally began um, as a sort of short story and I just found that there was like more room and there was more space and uh, there were more questions that I wanted to ask within that particular context and that extended it uh, right now I'm working on what I think is going to be the fourth book but like i've said that before and it's turned out not to be what i thought it would be so i, I very hesitantly say that i'm, I'm working on the, the next long thing uh now and it's going but you know it's also one of those things like we'll see uh, when if it's done that was brian washington author of the book family meal which was published by riverhead Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita and is part of the NPR Podcast Network. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producers are Haley Krausen and Katie Lanning. And our marketing coordinator is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Goulet.